also I've searched far and wide and the most what I have discovered or come up with what I find useful is the issue of living and dead traditions. I mean, that's again, you find it in the manga book already. And it's something that I've been thinking about again for a long time, way back in the 90s or 70s or whenever. He said Chinese medicine to all extent and purposes is dead. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. My grandfather used to say, if you have your health, you have everything. As a kid, that made no sense to me. How could it if you're basically a healthy child? You've got enough vitality to grow through childhood and into adolescence. And as a young adult, I still do not understand because I didn't have everything. I barely had the capacity to make enough money to pull my own weight in the world. There was latent capacity, still undeveloped. I suspect this is actually what my grandpa was referring to. If you have your health, then you have the energy and vitality to develop your potentials. It was not that I had everything, but rather I had a shot at developing the measure of my life that was within my grasp. Maybe another way to say it is that I had an opportunity to realize and embody the potentials that were mine, or could be if I put in the work. It's not that health means you get everything you want. Once come and go, fluctuate with the desires or complaints of the moment, ephemeral and changeable as wind. I conflated everything with a kind of Christmas list of comfort and pleasure. I failed to notice that the world requires our attention and dedication to something bigger than our petty desire. That in unfolding capacity, there was an opportunity to discover something of my Ming, my destiny. Not destiny as in assured outcome, but destiny as in unfolding the hidden potentials that give rise to meaning and connection that comes from overcoming obstacles, finding courage in the moments where it's sorely needed, and finding the windfall of surprising capacity when it goes from latent to flourishing. As with any words of wisdom, what you first hear and what those words mean are usually quite different. I think my grandpa was right. If you have your health, then you're free to engage the obstacles that in turn lead to everything. You've got the potential to manifest. He never did say it was easy. How do we lean on a past that crosses centuries, language, culture, and oceans without resorting to fetishization or wistful imagining. How to take the essence of inquiry from doctors of the past and use it not as a prescription, but rather an enlivened inquiry. We live in a world of change and yet practice a medicine rooted in ancient principles. Conventional medicine is built on change, but Chinese medicine always keeps one foot in the past and the other in the evolving present. The issues of continuity and change are ever present in our trade, and that is the topic of this conversation with Volker Scheid. Volker is a doctor, historian, and anthropologist, and I enjoy that he has a knack for uncovering illuminative questions. We'll get into all this in a moment. Stay with us. 
These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, The Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app slash switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period 
on your new Jane account. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. Hello, good day. This is John Scott. I'm a doctor of oriental medicine. I came out of acupuncture school in 1982, founder, president of Goldthorpe Flower Chinese Herbs. And welcome to this shop talk. Okay, so today I want to talk about some applications of the Wato Jaiji points. These are marvelous points to use. And, you know, in school they were taught, okay, the the bladder points, urinary bladder points are more for your organ, more direct tonification, your outer bladder points more for essence and emotional aspects of those Zangfu organs. And the Watto points, because of the way that there are work with the spinal nerves, are even more direct for physical function. And so these are marvelous points to use. And so the recommended treatment is needling perpendicular oblique towards the spine with uh, either half sun or one sun depth. And that will vary depending on where on the spine you're working. If you're in the upper thoracics, yeah, you don't want to go deep there. So these points regulate and harmonize the five song and six food directly by stimulating the specific spinal nerve. And while these are marvelous points with very broad applications, there's a couple of applications that I would like to go over here. And uh, there's a, a number of great protocols in various textbooks, uh, like the comprehensive text, we called the Shanghai book back years ago for herpes zoster, otherwise known as shingles. And this is something that I incorporate with great success. So with uh, you know shingles, it's a manifestation of the varicella virus, which is the chickenpox virus that is dormant in the nervous system. And we will typically contract chickenpox when we're a child. And then as we age, uh, and typically, uh, often under a period of great stress, uh, be, the shingles will manifest uh, as, as a, a, a very painful uh, blister types of outbreak. <laughs> it's, it's painful and, and terribly uncomfortable <laughs> besides that. And, you know, there's some protocols for working with supporting yin, clearing internal fire, are, are really important, but here's what, what I've found that can really speed up the, uh, the relief. Okay, so where is the outbreak? Is it on the abdomen? Is it on the leg? Okay, so 
okay, there, where is it? Okay, here it is in this intercostal space. Now, okay, it's very tender there. You don't want to touch the blisters. And you come back around to the back and you're pressing in that, in the intercostal area, going around the back, going back to the spine where it, where it attaches to the spinous processes, processes. Okay, so, and you're going to find probably two or three very tender places there. And so this is where you want to needle in those tender places. And you, you want to needle those as deeply as appropriate. And you can manipulate those as, um, you know, pretty strongly, you know, because you, you really want to work with sedating that pain. And, uh, and you'll find that the results and the relief from this particular auxiliary treatment will be really appreciated. And, you know, okay, uh, I remember I had a patient, he had uh, shingles all down the outside of his leg. And, uh, and I asked him about it, I said, well, and it was massive. I mean, kind of the whole medial side of the leg was covered in shingles. And, and he mentioned, oh, this has happened before when he did cocaine. And you would say, let's stop that. But, you know, so then, of course, I'm needling in the sacrum. But this is a really good treatment. Now, there's an, another level that I want to mention. The third sacral segment, that area is really wonderful for urogenital issues. And I've used that for genital herpes. Where So what I'm doing is I'm needling on the dew channel above and below the third sacral segment, and the Watto points obliquely inward on each side. And I've had people on the table who are having an active outbreak, and when they get off, the outbreak is gone. Well, and of course, you have to catch it before the blisters pop and, and when it's just emerging. But this has been a, a really uh, wonderful treatment. But of course, you do want to use other appropriate points. Now, but I've also found, I remember I was working with a couple with uh, fertility issues. Now, the wife actually gave her nourish essence, which is just a kidney formula. And she had a hist history of miscarriages. And the, the nourish essence was really ideal for addressing that. But her husband's sperm count could use some help. So I said, hmm, what if I did those points that I mentioned for genital herpes? His sperm count tripled from the test before and then after the treatment. It's like, oh, okay, mm -hmm. that was good. And uh, I've also used these, this point combination for prostate issues, especially older gentlemen, and these are really good points for improving prostate health. Of course, the prostate is fed by the liver, spleen, kidney, renin do too. You know, so what happens as we age, uh, damp heat can accumulate in the liver channel and congest the prostate. And as the kidney chi declines, we can have damp accumulation. And then also, of course, the spleen, of course, where people, you know, really want to talk about diet with prostate, 
is, you know, with kidney and spleen issues, you can have damp accumulation that congests the prostate. Uh, so, you know, using constitutional treatments, working with the affected channels is, uh, is going to be really uh, an important uh, strategy. Uh, but these, these particular uh, Watteau points are, are really going to be helpful. And no matter what the setup is, and you see people that have a history of, of alcohol, alcohol will encourage your zinc to be excreted. And zinc is really, really, really important for prostate health with uh, liver channel issues. You want to talk about alcohol and, and zinc and, hey, eat, eat pumpkin seeds and get more zinc in your system. But I found these Watto points to be to be really wonderful, and just want to mention that we have some really effective uh, herbal formulas for uh, prostate. We founded Golden Flower Chinese Herbs because of our concern about uh, imported products that were contaminated with pharmaceutical drugs. But over the course of the decades, we've designed formulas to address prostate issues. We have formulas to address dampete in the prostate. We have formulas that address benign hypertrophic prostate, and we do have formulas that are also appropriate for shingles, working with uh, antitoxin herbs and herbs that support yin and clear internal fire. Come to see us at www.gfcherbs.com. Volker Scheid, welcome back to Geological. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for inviting me. It's really nice to be back here talking with you again. I really like your broadcast, your podcast. Yeah, I told you that before, but I want to say it publicly too. Ah, well, thank you. It's uh, you know, it's a curious thing. I'm kind of an introverted person, and and I can remember so often as a student, like not wanting to speak up or ask questions because I felt stupid. And uh, now here I am with this podcast where I get to ask all kinds of questions. It's really curious how you do Chinese medicine long enough, it will maybe change you in some fundamental ways. Well, it brings out the best in you, you know? <laughs> so we've had a little conversation over the email over the past bit of time, and I'm always curious to know what you're digging into, what you're thinking. You know, you're one of those folks who... Uh, you like to go off into different directions and you like to go deeply into those different directions. And uh, it's often kind of off the boundaries of the beaten path. You know, I'm thinking in particular of the, uh, the book you did on the Mungho clan some years back where, you, you know, you really went into looking at the, uh, these doctors from Mungho and, and the society of the time and like the social capital people had with each other. And it wasn't so much about medicine, although there was some things in there about medicine, but like how people were with each other and how society is. And, you know, those are, those are things we don't think about so often when we're busy practicing in our clinic. And, uh, then again, yeah, through our conversation in the email, you brought up this, idea that you're working on of, of continuity and change. And Volker, that really rang a bell for me because, you know, we practice this incredibly traditional medicine in some ways, but we're also alive in a modern moment. 
and especially as East Asian medicine has found its way into the West, there's all kinds of other ways we have of thinking about our medicine that comes from having found a root in the West. And so I'm, I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on this. Well, um, as you know, maybe the people who don't know me, I'm both a practitioner, but I'm also a kind of like what you would call a professional historian. So I have kind of like a, a dual career. And those two careers, they both work well with each other, but they're also sometimes difficult to hold together because you, you look at things that interest practitioners. You know, as, as practitioners, we're interested in what works for my patients, how can I help my patients. As historians, as you say, if you look at the Mungho book, you're really interested in in other things. You know, you want to know how the medicine functioned in, in a society at a particular place and time. And those questions are, you know, sometimes they converge and sometimes they, they don't. But I think continuity and change is something that I've been thinking in Chinese medicine. I think that's something that's in, important for all of us, I would say. If I look at Chinese history, historically, it's always been important because, and it's important for any kind of knowledge practice in the sense of what, what about the knowledge that we have do we keep? And what don't we keep? What do we develop? So, like say, if you look at, if you look at um, kind of Jin Yuan doctors, they discuss that issue and the famous saying is kind of like ancient prescriptions. The past and the present don't run on the same track. Ancient formulas are not appropriate for modern diseases. So it's not a matter of biomedicine. That's an issue that has come up throughout the history of Chinese medicine. So that is a, a question that is kind of like of historical interest to the historian in me, but it's also really important for the practitioner in me. It's kind of like something that you address, you know, that you talked about before, before we went online. It's like life only has got so many so many years in it for all of us and each day has got only so many hours so what do we concentrate on what do we read what don't we read what do we go in into depths what should we look at superficially those are important decisions and if we if we can get some guides as to as to make these decisions then i think that's helpful and for me rather than come up with guides myself i've been trying for a very long time now to figure out what guides, you know, because as I said before, because Chinese medical doctors have been thinking about this issue for at least a period that I'm familiar with for the last thousand years, and what resources can they give us to think about this question? So maybe that's what we could talk about in this broadcast. You know, we often think about the past as informing the present with Chinese medicine. And I mean, in some ways, we really make a fetish of the past. I know I have, especially when I first began as a practitioner. So yeah, looking at this, these questions, you know, I think especially to Volkers, we, in this particular modern moment, it's funny, I, I, I was, you know, I'm saying in this particular modern moment, but I'm also thinking that you said, yeah, we've been discussing this as Chinese medicine practitioners for the past thousand years, right? So there's that. So maybe the the current present moment is not so much different than the uh, other present moments that uh, that have already unfolded. What what have you found in looking at this that people have been discussing and thinking about, and in, in, in how have they moved forward? Well, I think 
And there's two aspects. The one thing is that the one that you just mentioned. I think it's really important to look at how people have thought about it rather than I think there's a tendency for us Westerners and we are Westerners who do Chinese medicine. So let's just talk about us and not about other people. But there's a tendency for us, which I think comes from two sources. A, because we are Westerners and B, because most of us we don't know enough about the history of Chinese medicine, which is, you know, not a criticism. It's just like, how could we? Because we're practitioners, not historians. But there's a tendency for us to kind of like reinvent the wheel and think that, like like you said, oh, this modern moment, this kind of like, for instance, the disjunction between biomedicine and Chinese medicine or between whatever, that's really something unusual, that's special, That's, but it hasn't been. So I think in a one way simply recovering how people have thought about it. It's therefore useful for us. It makes it makes us on the Westerner in us a bit more humble. And B, because they have really thought about it. And the people who thought about this are people who, you know, they were they were really deep thinkers. So I think they can help us with that. So that's one reason of doing it. Yeah. Okay. The second aspect of the whole thing, for me at least, is to find because Chinese medical thinkers and doctors again have thought about this problem in in a range of different ways and some of these ways are very similar to you know like if you look at for instance one of the debates like you said yourself just before that has been has or is still going on here is like this let, let's not say fetishization of the past but there are some people who think the past has holds all the answers and then there's other people who think no it has to Chinese medicine has to go with the times it has to be developed through scientific research or even AI or whatever so if you just want for for argument's sake divide divide the field into those groups I mean as I said those arguments have been always going on but I think what I have been trying to do and what I will can tell you a little bit about is I, I want to find ways and, and in Chinese medicine there have been different groups having found different solutions to that. Um, to me, the most interesting solutions are the solutions that don't come necessarily from within the field of medicine. Because once you go within the field of medicine, then the people who have to make these, uh, who, who think about these issues about continuity and change, they also have other fish to fry. Meaning that, you know, you always, as a doctor, especially as a Chinese medicine doctor, past and present, you're usually self-employed, isn't it? You've, you need to make a living. And if you need to make a living, you need to market yourself. And you, you, whether you like it or not, you're competing with other people. So defining yourself as this and that, um, you know, like saying, I'm a practitioner who belongs to this lineage, or I'm a very scientist, I'm, I'm professor in this research institute, blah, 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 blah. I work in this hospital, or I do this. That's always invariably it's you know we, we cannot help it it's also part of marketing isn't it yes and i think that's always been the case so when chinese doctors say i belong to this lineage or i come from there or i'm the teacher of this or we should always go to the past that, that's also in the it's always been it's always been bound up with let's call them issues of marketing or identity formation and once they get up one things get up involved, you know, or, or muddled with identity formation, then the question that that I'm struggling with, or we struggle with, like continuity and change, 
then becomes a little bit more kind of like hazy or foggy to see. So I've been trying to find ways that are Chinese, so to speak, or that come from within the Chinese tradition of thinking, but that are not necessarily, or as as much as it is possible, not about identity fund, uh, identity issues within the field of Chinese medicine, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so you bring up the word identity. That's such a big concept right now. You know, people fight really strongly for their identity these days. We have identity politics. We have senses of identity built on, you know, whatever we think our identity is or whatever we think we are. Maybe it's always been that way. You know, you look into the culture of, like the United States, for sure, at this moment. I'm not sure about Great Britain or Europe. And uh, identity is is a huge thing. But again, not new. When we look back and we think about practitioners at other times, again, I, I, I often will come back and think about the monk. They for sure had identity, like who was my teacher? And, you know, you could lean on that kind of social capital to get patients. And so often these days... You know, people hate marketing, like, I don't like marketing, and, you know, it's terrible, it's awful, we have to do business. But like you point out, Volker, Chinese medicine doctors, by and large, have been self-employed forever. And these are issues we've always had. But there's nothing wrong with it, you know, like, say, take the Meng the the very idea that, you know, one of the things I found out, the very idea that they started calling them Meng people is Meng medicine, because... You know, those people emigrated to Shanghai and suddenly in Shanghai they were confronted with people who came from different parts of, particularly from Jiangsu and from Zhejiang province, but also from other places in China. And suddenly, you know, people knew there were a few famous doctors in medicine. So you said, I'm a, medi- I'm a Meng He person. Does it make sense? Yeah? Whereas in Meng He itself, n- nobody would have cared. Th- there it was important that you came from this family or that family, yeah, this teacher or that teacher, yeah. And uh, so it changes from, you know, in the context that you are. And what you mentioned, the, the issue of identity, you know, I, I live in the same time as you, so I'm, I've also become aware that identity is a very big issue. So from that perspective, finding a handle on continuity and change within Chinese medicine that is not so much inflected by issues of identity can also be, I think, have a third effect, namely be therapeutic for us if we're so concerned with identity. Does that make sense? That makes sense, especially as identity at this point is kind of a weaponized thing. Yeah. So I've searched uh, you know, far and wide and the most currently Currently, you know, this may all change again, you know, as, as what I have discovered or come up with or what, what I find useful is the issue of living and dead traditions. I mean, that's, again, you find it in the manga book uh, already, and it's something that I've been thinking about, again, for a long time. And the first time I started to think about it is Paul Unschuld in, in a book that he wrote kind of like way back in the 90s or 70s or whenever. He said, Chinese medicine to all extent and purposes is dead. It's like a tree uh, that has withered. The wood might still be useful, but the roots have died. And I think at another point, he also compared it 
to Latin. Kind of like Chinese medicine is like Latin, still useful, but it's dead. And I thought, is it really dead? Is it like that? Or is it not? And I've come from another perspective to the same problematic. Namely, and that's to me the interesting thing, I, disco I discovered that in there's a certain place in the history of Chinese medicine. In the, it starts in the 12th century or 13th century. People start talking about living methods, uh, huofa. So they say, okay, okay, you're using this. This is a sign that you're using a living method. And I've, I've come across, and this becomes then in the you know, this is 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th century, and even now. I mean, you read Chinese, you must have come across that. People will talk about the, the huofa, the living method. Uh, and a living method in the way that a lot of doctors use it is something that that is really appropriate to a particular place and time or particular a patient that has got some connection to the past, but it kind of reinventing is not the right word, but it makes it come alive in the present moment. Does it make sense? So something that comes alive in the present moment. And for them, the characteristic of um, a good, effective medicine, a medicine that's worthwhile to enact and pursue and transmit is kind of a living, a method, that uh, a medicine that, that is alive and that generates these kind of living or that lives on these kind of, that is alive through its enactment of living methods in every, in every situation. Yes. Okay. So to me, I hope I'm, it's okay if I keep talking. Huh? And that, yeah, no, it's, it, it, it uh, I'm just following along. I do want to interject for just a moment, though, as you talk about living method, as you talk about how ideas, theories, practices of the past, in whatever way, come down into an individual's consciousness and awareness and skill set, that's one thing. But for that to kindle and become alive in the moment with a particular patient, in a particular place, for a particular issue. I mean, for me, Volker, that is the joy of doing this work. It is a joy, but the question then is, how does that happen? How do we make it happen? What are life methods in Chinese medicine? And if there's life methods, that means there must also be dead ones, because otherwise everything would be alive. So, so then... So this tension between life methods and dead methods, that's for me a way of maybe how we can think about continuity and change without the issue of identity, if that makes sense, yes? Because of course you can say, oh, I'm the guy who does all these life methods and come to me, but your patients wouldn't understand that. And actually nobody in the field of Chinese medicine that I can see at the moment uses this very much. So therefore, it, it, to, to me, it's first of all, before I say any more, it's, it's, it's a good analytic. Does it make sense, yes, to think? So the next question then is, how can we be more specific about what we mean by life and death methods? And so I started looking where this actually comes from. Because it comes at a certain, you know, as I said, it comes in the 12th century. Um, I don't think if you look in the Shang'an Lun or in the Yellow Emperor, I'm not, you know, I'm I'm not an expert on Han Dynasty methods, or if you look at Ge Hong, I, I don't think they use this term life methods. 
so it comes around 1200 and um, it most likely if I'm not totally mistaken it comes from poetry so poetry yes poetry and because at that time in the history of you know Chinese poetry people started to talk about life methods in poetry and uh, so this idea of what are life and what are dead methods is something that doesn't come out of Chinese medicine but it's been assimilated into Chinese medicine and if you think poets deal actually with the same problem that we deal with yeah because a poet has to write poetry that is alive for his audience isn't it that is meaningful for his audience that makes a that people want to read, that people want to listen to, but why do they want to read and listen to poetry? Because it also s changes something in them, isn't it? Yes, it, it makes a difference to them. And as you know, in poetry, sometimes, um, you know, like for me, there's one of the, there's a few German poems that I had to read in school. Uh, there's one by Goethe and there's one, another one by Rainer Maria Rilke. It's about the panther. And, um, these poems are still within me and they, you know, I could recite them by heart and they, you know, they've been there for hundreds of years and they speak not just to me, you know, they speak to like, th those poems have spoken to like millions of Germans. Yes. <laughs> well, not just Germans, Volker, people all over the world, those words have spoken to. They've spoken to me. I, you know, I read them and, and I go, <gasps> That's right. So maybe you could compare that, you know, like like say like take the take the panther by by Rilke, you or Goethe poem, you could say or Shakespeare sonnet or whatever, you know, you could say, oh maybe that's a bit like Zhang Zhongjing, you know, like a formula. It's like Guizhetang. Yes, it's it's been there. It speaks to millions of people all over the world, many different situations. Although you have to find, you know, like the panther Rilke will only speak to you in a particular moment, yeah? It will not speak to you in every moment, yeah? It will only speak to you in a particular moment. So if you kind of like do a poetry recital, you know, you want to know that both your audience and the moment is right for reciting the panther. But on the other hand, you know, like say you are a poet, one thing is, you know, to be a reciter of other people's poetry. And maybe, maybe as doctors, maybe that's doctors, it could well be that that is what, what we want to be or what we need to be. But maybe as doctors, we need to be also generators of new poetry. So take, you know, like a typical example would be COVID. You know, so when we had COVID, like some people said, Oh, well, that's no problem. Chinese medicine has always dealt with these kind of things. Just use these ancient formulas, blah, 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 and that, that will work. And if you look at the history of COVID, um, you know, if you look at COVID, and then people would say, oh, yeah, Shanghai Lun has always been around. It's, uh, but it's actually not true. If you look at the history of Chinese medicine, epidemics have always been moments when new things have happened. You know, like the whole... Butung Ichitang, take Butung Ichitang as an example. You know, that's a, a wonderful formula that all of us use maybe all the time. Comes out of an epidemic situation, isn't it? Yes. I did not know that Butung Ichitang came out of a 
epidemic situation. Most people don't know that, but it came out of a all, all that you know the Li Li Dongyuan stuff and particular Bu Zhong Yi comes out of an epidemic situation. Yeah, maybe we can talk about that another time. But then you know, even Zhang Zhongjing comes out of an epidemic situation. Yes, and then the Wen being to look at what one of the ways you could write the history of Chinese medicine would be you know, like these big transformations that come. One one of the big generator of change is, is epidemics when, when things don't work anymore that that used to work, yes. And then there can be other um then there can be other situations. You know, like I'm 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 heavy into the seventeenth century and in the seventeenth century, um again most people don't know that, but one of the problems in seventeenth century was what they called the cult of the emotions. Cult of the emotions. This sounds like today. Yeah. As I said, things are very, you know, like, actually, what these people are suffering from is very much, and, and how doctors responded to that is very similar to nowadays, burnout and emotional, you know, like, dealing with all the emotional stresses. But again, you know, there's something new that the, the way people express their emotions at that moment in time, and how they dealt with their emotions, how they thought about their emotions was very, very different than Hundred or two hundred years earlier, or hundred or two hundred years later. So there's something new, and in these new situations, maybe we have to create new poetry, poetry that's more resonant with a particular situation. Maybe we have to create medicine that is more resonant with that new situation. And poets or literary theorists, in using this term of living methods and dead methods. They thought about how do you become a good poet, a poet that can respond to these these situations uh, by by creating poetry that's you know alive and meaningful and and resonant. And the the reason I think it's a good model for us, a good way for us to think about it, is because in Chinese poetry, at least in the history of of, of Chinese poetry. Or in the history of, of art in general, and also whether if you look at calligraphy or painting or so, how do you become a poet? And how is the field of poetry constructed? The field of poetry and the field of medicine are not so different because they're in the same culture. You know, you have these ancient models that you admire. So in Chinese medicine, this would be like say say herbal medicine, it would be Zhang Zhongjing or Sun Tzu Miao. These old guys who produced the kind of standards, so so to speak, and poetry is kind of like the tongue. Tongue poetry is like that's a late tongue. That's 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 this this ideal that maybe you can never go beyond. Can you ever go beyond Zhang Zhongjing or Sun Zemia or the Neijing or whatever? Can you ever go beyond that? If you can never go beyond it, then. Some people said, "Well, just learn their style, copy their style, do that, and then, well, that's all you can do." Good enough for a mere mortal. Yeah, and others would say, "Well, yes, no, actually, no, that's not good enough. You get a new situation, or you get COVID, or whatever. the The cult of the emotions. No, we have to generate art." Poetry that is alive for this moment, and how do you do that? And they, 
you know, obviously you always have to start with the ancient models. You know, you have to you have to know in poetry, you know, the rhyming and the how you construct a poem, etc., etc., etc. You have to learn that. But then eventually you have to free yourself from that. And this process of freeing yourself. So at a certain moment, just imitation becomes dead because it no longer in poetry because it no longer resonates with the moment in medicine because you know and, and we've seen that through the 2000 years of, of Chinese medicine because the medicine simply stops working it doesn't work or at least you know that's that seems to be the evidence yeah okay and then people need to create something new and how do you do that I mean, in poetry, that's actually a, a very, very clear model for us, I think. It could be a clear model for us to think about these issues. is Because they don't set up a, a tension between, like, like in our thinking, between it's either traditional or it's modern, yes? Okay? Like, either it has to be past or it's... No, actually, you can only produce living methods if you're totally immersed in what has been there or what is there. That, does that make sense? Yes, unless you unless you have really studied tongue poetry until you start dreaming about it, until you you know you memorized all these poems, you can talk, you know them by heart, you can you can recite them at any meeting with your friends, you know, can, even when you're totally drunk, you know which poem to select for which particular situation. You you know the rhyming schemes and all of that. Only then can you move beyond it? Does it make sense? Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. It, it does make sense. And it's one of the things that I've considered over the years. Uh, this is, you know, tangential in a way. I remember way back, even in school, there were some of my classmates who worked in a much more intuitive fashion. And, uh, you know, I kind of scratched my head and go like, where are they getting that? I mean, it doesn't seem like it's connected to anything. And I'm, I'm doing my best to connect it to the stuff that I'm learning. And they're just kind of going in and intuiting something and thinking that's good enough to to do the work with. And I don't want to 
throw any shade on intuition. I, I think there certainly is a place for it. And maybe they were extremely skilled, like way more than me. That's because I'm not a particularly intuitive person. So, you know, I get it. Grounding yourself deeply in something gives a kind of stable framework. I'm speaking strictly for myself. A stable framework that I can stand on that while standing on that stable framework, I can see and, and understand things with my own intuiting or knowledge or experience and and, and it, it has a place to be i'm not just dreaming it up and hoping it works exactly and the issue that you raise there i mean this of course is also again an issue that these literary theorists have already discussed because it's the same problem for them you know do you just go in there and you know of course if you're a genius maybe but even a genius, you know, like you have to be, even if you're a genius to write a poem, you have to, that your audience will appreciate, you have to, you have to have known something, you know, like, you know, even, even like Goethe or Rilke that I talked about before, they didn't just, they weren't born and picked up a piece of paper and wrote the punter, the, the punter, yeah, they, they read and st does that make sense? Even a genius, they, they have to have immersed themselves in something. But this issue about, you know, is it more intuition or is it more repetition? That is an issue that these people, um, that these people discussed. So as I said before, if we try to engage a little bit with these processes, then I think they can help us navigate, you know, the, the very question that come up for you, you know, like in this, in this situation, is it okay? To what extent can we base ourselves on intuition? To what extent do we just have to keep repeating? The idea, of course, would be that repetition in the end allows you to become free, yes? I think it can. If I don't turn it into a fetish and become sort of enslaved to it, then I think it can. I, I had an experience, Fulcrum, such a slow learner. This, this only happened maybe five or six years ago. When I was in school, I had a, a teacher, Dr. Shea, Everybody loved Dr. Shea. She was great. And I remember in her teaching us acupuncture, she'd always say, okay, you've done these yin points. You've got to do a yang point or two to make sure everything's balanced. And that went in. And I, whenever I do acupuncture, if I had a bunch of yin points, I'd be like, oh, yeah, right. I better put in a yang point. Right? That's what Dr. Shea said. And at a certain point a, a few years back, I mean, I'm, Volker, repetition for like 20 years, right? At a certain point, I was doing a treatment. I had a bunch of yin points in, and I was really working in particular some of the engaging vitality work that, uh, that uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be exposed to. And everything felt great with this patient. It's all yin points, and everything, it's just like everything is wonderful. And Dr. Shea's voice and her image pop into my mind, She's like, don't forget those yang points. And I had this delightful moment of, oh, I don't think I need yang points here. Thank you, Dr. Xia. <laughs> but not here, not now. And I saw it. I realized that I've been doing this repetition without realizing that I've been doing this repetition up till the moment where I recognized what's in front of me 
is fine the way it is. And then there was that break. It wasn't a break because Dr. Xia was wrong. It was a break because in this situation, it was not called for. I mean, I had a similar experience in a, you know, like we go back a long time. So when we learn Chinese medicine, it's quite different than it's the field of Chinese medicine. When I started, very different than I studied. I remember I did my herb course and we did the Shanghandun and the Wen Bing in three hours. That was all considered, that was considered necessary. Anyway, then I went to China and um, and I looked around there and I discovered uh, Ye Tian Shi and, uh, and, and I've always, he's just always spoken to me. I loved his, it's kind of like a bit like certain poetry would speak to you, his formulas, you know, only, uh, I, I just loved it and, and I really liked it. And I thought, oh, I, I, I want to be, I want to be able to, to be like him. I actually, I went to Beijing Library in the Academy of Chinese Medicine. I went there for a month, and I copied. In the, in those days, you you couldn't go on the on you know, there were no computers. I had to get the librarians to actually photocopy every article that had ever appeared in a in a Chinese medicine journal on on Yetianshe. They made a copy for me. Yeah, okay. And I went home and I, and I really studied this. You know, like. I tried to practice and it just bloody didn't work, yeah? Not really. And until I realized, if you want to understand Ye Tian Shi, you know, like Ye Tian Shi to me is a poet of Chinese medicine. But he based himself on, you know, on what came before him. Zhang Zhongjing and all these Jin Yuan doctors. Unless you know them, there's no chance in hell that you can do what he did, yes? So... So I went back and put a lot of energy into into these earlier people and then went back to Ye Tianshe and then then suddenly I started to get into the groove, so to speak. Yeah. Does it make sense? Yeah. So if you want to become that kind of poet that Ye Tianshe was, you have to yeah, you know, like you have to be where he was. You cannot just hope is is very similar to the to your issue of intuition, isn't it? Yes. You cannot just hope to jump in there and be it, yes, you have to do the work, huh? and then maybe you can be. And Ye Tianshi for me is, for instance, a good example of of these living methods. Yes, he, you can see in not all, but you know, like all the development of his wounding ideas, they really are a kind of um, a new poetry that, but that is built very, very firmly on the foundations of particular of Zhang Zhongjing some other stuff, but then goes off and, and makes something new new from it, yeah? And uh, that's, to me, an, another good example of, of living methods, yeah? Yes, and there's your continuity and change right there. You know, this also brings something up, Volker. Well, two things. First, uh, I just heard you use the phrase, <laughs> it didn't work. You put all this energy into something. You get all these copies, you pour over it, you bring it into your practice, you work it, <laughs> it doesn't really work. I, I just want to stick a pin in that for a second. I'm going to come right back to it. And and then the other thing that you were just talking about is that, that you couldn't do what Yetian Ye Shir did without knowing the influences that he relied on. Like, what was the continuity that informed him? You needed to know that before you could 
like grok his methods. Yeah, like he writes a prescription, you need to put through these six herbs, tell me, you know? They might look very new, but actually it's just a kind of like a, a new riff on an old melody. It doesn't make sense. So going back for just a moment to it didn't work, I, I think this is really important. This is vitally important to anyone who wants to practice Chinese medicine for any length of time because, and they don't tell you this in school, and, and if they told you in the beginning is, you know, in your first student interview that you're going to find out a lot about what doesn't work, a lot of people would, would never start, me being one of them. And this, this thing about we can go into something, we can, we can spend days, months, maybe years, put our heart and soul into it, put our mind into it, try to work something out only to successfully arrive at a dead end. Yep, that's life. How do you get through something like that? Because I think we all run into it. Yeah, but any poet will do that as well, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we expect it. I think we expect it from poets and artists, but medicine is supposed to be a more serious scientific enterprise. But, so therefore, that maybe so this analogy or this um, connection to poetry, I therefore find it useful. Yes, because. I mean, Chinese medicine is not, you know, of, of course, people will now nowadays go on and say it's it's a science, you know, Chinese medicine is science. People talk about, you know, in the Han Dynasty, you know, the scientific physicians, or they already knew about the immune system or whatever. But, you know, science is a word that comes into the Chinese language from Japan at the end of the 19th century. And... The Japanese had, it's a kind of like a new word that the Japanese coined from, you know, when they encountered European science. So until the end of the 19th century, there's no kosher in China, yes? And it comes from Japan. The actual term comes from Japan. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. But because the Japanese modernized earlier, yes? So the Japanese, so until about the 1930s, until the, you know, the, the, Second Japanese-Chinese War, Japan was kind of like the model for for modernization in China. Yeah? So then, but, but a lot of these lot of these words they, they sound very ancient in Chinese, but they're actually not. Yes. Okay. So so I don't think we can think about Chinese medicine in. Okay, that's actually a good. I'm I'm going to go off in a slightly different tangent now. Yeah, but staying with the with the alive and dead. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay, now I hope this will not be too complicated, but this tension between something that is alive and dead, the interesting thing, and that's why I think it can be potentially so productive for us, this tension between alive and dead, I mentioned before, you know, Unschuld, etc., but, but it also occurs, for instance, in, uh, I'm, I'm a historian, so it also occurs in academia, particularly in the humanities. And one of the ways... Uh, they use this idea, life and dead is. So if you study nowadays, yes, if you're a, you know, whether you're a scientist, uh, you know, biomedical scientist, or whether you're a anthropologist or a historian, how do you study something like Chinese medicine? Or how, you know, not not just Chinese medicine could be like, um, could be anything that goes on in India or in South America. Usually, or almost invariably. You're using some kind of modern 
Anglo-European framework to think about it, like for instance science, yes, okay? But in that way, and without going into the details, so so some of the so the the idea is that only these European Anglo-European ideas are truly alive because they are what helps us to understand everything. And these other things, you know, like Chinese medicine or I don't know, weaving in India or magicians in the Amazon forest, their theories are dead because they don't allow us. So like the way a magician in the Amazon forest thinks doesn't allow us to think about our problems. So that's why for me, this idea of rest, using this framework of live and dead methods that comes out of Chinese poetry, if, if you can follow me, in order to think about Chinese medicine here and now is much more useful for me because I'm recovering something that is that was, is still alive in Chinese medicine rather than using, you know, science or... I'm not saying that is not useful, but that's not what I want to do. Because if I use science or, or like I have done, you know, like I'm, 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 I'm as guilty as anybody. I used, uh, if, you, if you look at a lot of my earlier work, I used kind of like modern science studies, ways of thinking to think about Chinese medicine. But in doing that, I condemn Chinese medicine to death. What I have to do if I want to keep Chinese medicine alive, I have to find ways within Chinese medicine to think about Chinese medicine, even think about things outside of Chinese medicine, or, or ways like, like to me, this living dead method that comes out of poetry to think about Chinese medicine. For us, that is something that keeps Chinese medicine alive. Can you follow that? Yeah. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. I do, and, and I also appreciate, Volker, your awareness and forthrightness with in doing the best work you can do, because that's the kind of person you are, you have at times used that Anglo-centric view. Hey, look, fair enough. It's where we come from. It's very hard not to use it. So you've taken it, you've used it, 
got what you can from it, found things that are useful, found things that make it dead. And then now here you are looking to invigorate Chinese medicine, realizing, oh, I need a different model. Chinese poetry, huh? How, how might that be helpful? It's, it's really cool. Volker, you're like a mathematician. You know, you, you show your work. <laughs> it's wonderful to go wrong for the ride. Thanks. But I think it's, it's very important for us to be wrong, isn't it? Yes. And, uh, and know that we can, very often we are wrong, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> I, I think it is. And, and welcome it, if that might be the right way to say it, as part of the process, as part of our teacher. And, and you know, I, being wrong, if we take it without too much self-criticism, learn the lesson, it can be so helpful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, a lot of people have problems with being wrong, but... Um, it's a whole different conversation, isn't it? Well, it's a different conversation. But again, you know, like, so, so if, if, you know, we would have to go into, and, and, and this is obviously not the right medium for that, but the people who have thought about these um, living and dead methods, you know, the people who've done literary theory and the people who've done the thinking, you know, they really have thought about this, yes? And, and it actually ties in and the way they think about it, you know, remember these are people, you know, in 12th century, 13th century, 15th century, 17th century, they think in ways that ties in with a lot of what we do, like uh, qi and uh, qi dynamic and um, tung, bian and uh, hua and all, all, those, all those words that we use in, in, in Chinese medicine. So like a good poem has to, has to also tung in the same way that, uh, you know, connect in the same way that good Chinese medicine must tung. So I think it's a mind for us to, to mind. And maybe other people, maybe talking to you here, other people can get interested in it. And I want to give you another example of how, for me, this helps me to be very clear about what is life and what is a good direction and what is a bad direction, not not a bad and not so good direction because it it's um it's like one of those cul-de-sacs. It won't lead us somewhere. Yeah. Okay. So you know I've done a lot of research on menopause. Yeah. Although people who don't know me, um, I, I've spent what one of the research projects I've done was on 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 menopause, and. Um, you know, when we all when we go to TCM school, we all learn that menopause is kidney deficiency. Is that true, Michael? Uh, it's let's just say it's the first thing that's probably going to come to mind for most people. But it's certainly in the in the in the main gynecology textbooks, yes. And again, maybe you have found that in your own clinical practice, it doesn't necessarily always deliver the best results, yeah. And one of the things I did in, in, in the course of this research, um, first of all, I looked at how uh, this idea that uh, menopause is kidney deficiency came about. And it's uh, very obvious it came about as a translation of uh, estrogen deficiency into a Chinese kind of, of idiom. Because if you can look at any classical text, there's no, there's no discussion of menopause as a as a problem because menopause was just a normal thing, isn't it? Yes. 
also there's a lot of cultural variation in how people, how, how, how women experience menopause. So we cannot be sure that e even if women in the, you know, whatever, in third or 14th century China would have gone through the menopause, they went through the menopause, but even if they would have had symptoms, we cannot be certain what kind of symptoms they would have had. And I've talked with, you know, I've, I've done interviews with the people who actually were involved in creating the textbooks in the 1960s in which menopause gets defined as a, as kidney deficiency. And, uh, okay, so, so it gets actually translated from a biomedical idea. Biomedicine says menopause as a problem is hormonal deficiency. Okay, what does it mean? Oh, Chinese medicine hormones is kidney, so therefore it's a kidney deficiency. And then you, what you've done here is you translated one kind of, you know, whether you want to call it, one piece of writing, you translated it into something else. But you made that something else, the Chinese medicine, you made it dependent on Western medicine. But it gets created as a fact within Chinese medicine. It gets portrayed as if it was not, people don't say, oh, in the 1960s, we didn't have any better idea to think about it. You know, that's why we came up with this, but maybe in 20 years' time, maybe we should change that. No, Chinese medicine, of course, because of the way it's constructed, it has to say, well, this was already in the, you know, in the Huangdi Neijing, and da, 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 which is obviously not true. So you create a false kind of fact. Biomedicine can then change because it's alive. Can you follow me? Biomedicine can change and it's a lie. But Chinese medicine, by having created this false kind of fact, is now stuck. Yes, because we always look backward to try to understand our present. How difficult will it be for us to get rid of this fact? How difficult? Well, maybe if a lot of people listen to this podcast, it would be easier. But it's going to be very difficult. I can again tell you that from my own experience. You know, I try to get evidence that this is not a fact and I have evidence and you know, I have loads of evidence I've published lots of evidence from many different angles you know from surveys of, of the literature from surveys of patient presentations etc I try to get it published in a journal and the reviewers I tried to get it published in a you know I went through the peer review process and the reviewer said well actually you are contradicting the Chinese medicine textbooks so therefore that shows that you don't understand Chinese medicine and as you don't understand Chinese medicine, you don't know what you're talking about. So therefore, you have to reject this paper. Does that make sense to you? Yeah? Well, that calls into uh, question a whole lot of things about the peer review process, doesn't it? No, no. I got it published in a biomedical journal. This calls into question the peer review process, but I got it published in a biomedical journal. It calls to me into question a process whereby Chinese medicine goes down the road of certain death by not developing itself according to living methods, if you can follow me. Yes, okay. But by simply copying something from somewhere else, biomedicine retains for itself the right to change all the time, to be new, different, etc., etc. Yeah. Whereas Chinese medicine and you could observe the same thing, or at least I have observed that. If, if, you, if, you, if you observe what happened during the COVID pandemic, obviously my sources of information are limited and uh, maybe I'm a bit biased, whatever. But 
when I observed what was happening in biomedicine, you know, both both in the literature, but also in you know talking with biomedical colleagues, you know, they they were always oh we have never seen like this something like this, and they adjusted, and we have to do it differently, and we learned as we went on. And I talked to osteopathic colleagues. Oh, we have never seen. You know, we learn and we. And then I went read Chinese medicine was on. No problem. This is like Chinese medicine knows how to deal with epidemics. You know, I, I haven't seen much. I'm, I'm really sorry to say I haven't seen much of a learning process uh, within the Chinese medicine community, and I can understand why that is because we are so socially weak. That's one reason. But you know, if we think that. Life, as you said before, life is one part of life is to to be open to make mistakes, to be wrong, to not know what we're doing, and out of that not knowing, create something that is alive. You know, like a poet. Poet doesn't get up in the morning. You know, maybe he gets up in the morning and he knows, oh, this is this is it. But more often than not, you will see his room full of papers that he, you know, like. You have seen these movies, you know, where somebody turns and they write something and then they throw the piece of paper away, you know, and the whole room fills up with jottings that didn't work, yeah. So Volker, the um you, you just made a comment here. One of the things with Chinese medicine is that we're socially weak. I'm not sure what you mean by that phrase. Can you Fill that out a little bit for me. Well, we have no social power. We have the margins, yes? We are kind of like, we are weirdos. I mean, you know, you, you, you go to a party and then, you know, like I know I'm a historian, I'm a professor of history, and I'm a Chinese medicine practitioner. If I go to a party and, you know, people ask me, what do you do? I have two choices, isn't it? Yeah, I can say I'm a professor of history or I can say I'm a Chinese medicine practitioner. If I say I'm a professor of history, hmm, that's, well, it's not quite as good as a banker, but it's okay, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. If I say I'm a Chinese medicine practitioner, you know, like, yeah, maybe, you know, like we have to, pe people think, oh, this could be a potential weirdo, isn't it? Yes. So, I mean, you know that. We have no cert, you know, like if you're a doctor employed in a man, things are changing. It's not the same anymore in, 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 don't know how it is in America, but. A lot of people in Europe don't want to become doctors anymore because they don't earn any money anymore. It's not like a gen generation or two ago, if you were a doctor, if you were a consultant in a hospital, you know, you were made. That's not happening anymore. But biomedicine, of course, had a lot of social status. The people who would practice medicine would, would make decent money. As even Chinese medicine practitioners, a lot of Chinese medicine practitioners struggle, isn't it? Yes. Well, a, a lot of us do. I, I think some of that, honestly, and, and this could be a different conversation, but I think a lot of it is self-inflicted. Of course, of course. But there's no, you know, like you get out of Chinese medicine school, there's no certainty for you in life, isn't it? I didn't go into Chinese medicine looking for certainty. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're looking for certainty and you go into Chinese medicine, you're going to have a rough go and there's you're going to kind of have to awaken to that. There's not a lot of certainty, and either you get friendly with that, or you go into real estate. In in America, I don't know you. In in the states, insurances will pay for what you do, don't they? Uh, in some places, not where I live. But then there's that whole other side of well, now you're an employee of the insurance company, which means you're somewhat limited in what you can do and how you can work and how much you can earn. Yeah, 
Well, socially weak, I give you a very good example for socially weak. In the UK, you know, when, when COVID hit, we, we were forced to close our practices, yes? Same here. Osteopaths and doctors didn't have to. Right. There was a whole question of who was essential and who was not, which really, I mean, who, who wants to be called non-essential? You know, that's a very good example for who is socially weak and who is socially strong, isn't it? Yes. That showed us something of the uh, power structure of the, uh, of the culture. But, Volker, back to the, the living in the dead and, and, um, and what poetry has to tell us, how it might help us. For those who are listening, and this has been a wonderful conversation, I think in particular I'm, I'm struck by recognizing you know, just how often I look through my Anglo-dominant culture perspective. But then again, I have no, without some work on my part, there's no way not to do that. And even if I want to look through a different set of lenses, I still have to be aware of the lenses that I've acquired through the accident of my birth and and you know where I grew up. We all have that. It's not, you know, it's not a crime. It's just a possible benefit depending on how you use it, or obstruction depending on how you use it. So, so there's that. The thought of wow, okay, these twelfth century poets were struggling with the same thing that we're struggling with here in medicine, and that this is a part of the culture that also our medicine flows from. So, Volker, how, how can we like build a bridge into that work and maybe see what they saw? You know, there's no causal influence, but... I mean, one thing you need to know about poetry, poetry in China was a little bit like what popular, how do you call it? It's not a little longer rock music. It's kind of like... Oh, popular music? Popular music, you know, whatever comes under that. Yes, it's for us, isn't it? Yeah, it's just like, well, everything, yes, from well, everything you can find on Spotify or whatever, yeah, on Apple Music. That's part of, you know, everybody's listening to music these days, yes? So I think poetry, if you want to get an idea of what po what poetry meant to kind of like the elite Chinese that produced the medicine that, that we are using, I mean, they were, in, they were invested in poetry in the same way that we are invested in music, yeah? So everybody, everybody was listening to it, reading it, uh, reciting it, trying their hand at it. You know, they would meet for a gathering, then they would have kind of like they would drink and recite poetry and write poetry in the spur of the moment so everybody could do a bit about that. And, and as I said before, in poetry you have these, um, these movements, you know, like um, at, at a certain period of time people will go in more for the, well, for the more innovative stuff and then at other moments they will say, oh no, that's this kind of like like you said, following your intuition, oh no, that just produces bad poetry and then pendulum swings back again. So for instance, like say for instance, what good example here, uh, I hope I'm not upsetting somebody by saying that, but this um, this current fashion for Jingfang, like for ancient kind of stuff. Jingfang. Yeah, usually the, the Han Dynasty stuff, I think is what we're talking about here. Yeah. So I think I think a lot of that comes from, as far as I can trace it, comes from 
really from you know the first time that Zhang Zhongjing was categorically separated from any other doctor in the history of Chinese pharmacotherapy, as far as I can tell, is a guy in the mid 16th century. Yeah. Before Zhang Zhongjing was always just like a special guy, but but just basically like everybody else. But then you have something happen, and and um, he be, he becomes very different. In the 16th century, mid 16th century, yeah, mid 16th century, and and who popularized him at that point? Well, that's another issue that we can discuss some other time. Yeah, no, because it's a bit more complicated than that. So, but anyway, and then you have. A little bit later, you have in Chinese thinking this uh, something called like fugu, like return to the ancient, yeah, okay? But the first people who became invested in fugu, in returning to the ancients, were actually poets. There was a big movement in poetry in the 16th century to go back to the ancients, yes, to model yourself on, as I said, in, in, in poetry, it wasn't something in the Han, but it was uh, the late Tang. So you have this fugu movement in poetry, and roughly around the same time, the first Chinese guy, you know, the first guy makes Zhang Zhongjing totally different from everybody else. There's other influences on him, but what I want to say is, you know, what happens in poetry and what happens in medicine is, uh, is, is not all that different. And then you have a reaction against this, going back to the past. And um, I was talking about Ye Tianshe before. Ye Tianshe's famous opponent, let's call him like that, or friend or colleague. Have you ever heard about Xie Shengbai or Xie Xie? Not off the top of my head. I mean, no, not, not off the top of my head. So Ye Tianshe was this very famous guy who, he's portrayed as the guy who invented Wen Bing one of the main inventors of Wen Bing, and he was living in, in a town called Suzhou in China. And uh, he, he was very, very famous. And there was another famous guy at the same time. Uh, he's called Xie Xie or Xie Shengbai. And Xie Shengbai wrote one of the most important, or he's attributed to him, one of the most important texts on, also of Wen Bing, a damp wall, a treatise, a treatise on damp wall. But the two of them were kind of like colleagues but also you know there's loads of popular stories about their you know their competitiveness yes okay for instance Xu Shengbai had a clinic and his clinic was called like Sao Ye like sweeping away the leaves studio and Ye Tianshe is of course called his surname is Ye yes okay so sweeping away the leaves was interpreted as a kind of like a dig <laughs> So just to give you a flavor of what was going on there, yeah? So, you know, I'm thinking in the modern day, we have poetry slams. You know, you have poets going up against each other. It's like, oh, you think you can rhyme that? Well, listen to this, right? And Xie Xie, he was also a very, very, very famous poet, an extremely famous poet at that point in time. And his poetry, his his way of writing prescriptions was kind of like, he, he had studied with a poetry teacher who emphasized not going retu- uh, returning to the ancients, but kind of like things, things 
transform and change and you have to create new things. So to me, like, if I look at his prescriptions and if I look at Hietjen Shih's prescriptions, Hietjen Shih lives at the same time. He was not a poet, but again, there's no causal relationship, but in the same way that the that you have this fugu return to the ancient at the same time as doctors start to return to Zhang Zhongjing in a way they had never done before. And you have this kind of like invention, inventiveness of this new kind of Wenbing thing going on, influenced in part at least by a doctor who's also a poet and who's very much into creating kind of like new poetry. You know, these are resonances at least, yes, okay? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. And, you know, I mean, this is going to sound cliche, Volker. We say in Chinese medicine, often enough, it all comes down to yin and yang. It does. Right? <laughs> and so we have inventiveness, we have stability, we have things that are becoming, we have things that have left a trace from the past. And they're all important. And because life is moving and constant and searching and inquisitive, we do swing like a pendulum. We're here, we're there. You go over enough to one side, you learn something interesting, but that's only a part of the story. And so you swing into this other place based on what you now know from having lived through a particular experience. Yeah, but as I wanted to make clear with that, example of menopause, yes, how we can construct, you know, like it's not just like, just go ahead and do it and, you know, yin and yang, you know, of course it will eventually swing. But if we want to keep Chinese medicine alive as a tradition in the long run, then we should try and avoid going down the dead track if we, if we can. <laughs> so this leads to, I, I think, a very potent question of how do we know that we're going down the live track. So for instance, one example that I gave, and that's why I wanted to give it, if you, you know, in, in this process of translation from a biomedical disease into Chinese medicine, you surrender your vitality because you say, okay, biomedicine creates living stuff, biomedicine can change, and we just have to adjust to that. We are no longer producers of anything. Then you have um, surrendered your vitality. If we simply copy old stuff, then we also have, you know, then if we only copy old stuff, if the past, like you said in the very beginning, you used the word fetish. fetish fetishism is also a way of how you can surrender vitality. So what we need to struggle for and what we have to think about, or should think about, what are the things that keep us vital? And I've given you two examples of things that don't keep us vital. And, you know, if we would talk about it more, maybe we can find some others. You know, we can find things that keep us more vital, and we can find things that keep us less vital. And so, obviously, you know, want to keep Chinese medicine alive, let's do the vital things. Yeah. I appreciate your nod to the concept and experience, really, of, of resonance. And I also tend to have a, uh, a bias, I guess, these days, more for 
questions that hold a potency beyond answers that give me a sense of satisfaction. And so having you suggest that we attend to not surrendering our vitality, I think that might actually be a good place to uh, put a bookmark in it for today. And, you know, some other time we can come back and pick up on whatever we want to pick up on because there's a lot here. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to stop and thank you for inviting me. Thank everybody for listening and talking about these things is always a, an opportunity to, to think more about it for myself too. Yeah. So thank you very much. Thank you, Volker. There's something reassuring for me that the questions of continuity and change have been addressed by other creative endeavors. Change and continuity, there's a lens that can be applied to most any collective human endeavor of merit. And if you look closely at yourself, I suspect that you'll notice, as I have, that sorting out what to keep from what to change, it's an ongoing process, not unlike that of digestion or respiration. Somewhere in the middle of the fundamentalist stance of the golden past should inform the present and the deconstructionist declaration of tear down the old systems of oppression, somewhere in between the fire and brimstone declaration that the Bible is undoubtedly the word of God and the vengeance of the Chinese cultural revolution, there surely must be a place in the yin and yang of continuity and change to inform and support each other. Looking to the 12th century Chinese poets, mm, not a bad start. Finding the voices that can speak cogently to these issues in our modern day, also a good idea. And I rather like thinking about looking into other disciplines besides that of Chinese medicine to see how they are framing and entertaining this perennial challenge. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.